Good morning, church. Happy to be with you all this morning. Um, When Pastor Mark preached two weeks ago, he told us about a nickname that he had been given by another congregation. Mark 12.20. Not because he had any particular affinity for that verse, but because that's usually what time he finished preaching. And so I want everyone to rest easy. I've given myself a nickname this morning. You can call me Richard 1150-ish. And that's, that's not to be confused with Mark 1220, Charlie 1205, Timothy 1157, or Chad 1133. Um, somewhere in the middle. Now that I've got my ribbing out of the way, let's jump into the text for this morning. So open your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30. Let me read through the passage and then I'll pray for us. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. God, we do thank You for gathering us here. We know that every person is here because You intend them to be. We know that You... Use your word through the preaching of sinners to sinners as a means for the Holy Spirit to work. God, I pray now for your help, for me as I preach, and for everyone here as they listen. Let your word work in our hearts to stir up a deeper love for you and a deeper commitment to your work. We pray this to you, Father, in the name of Jesus to be catalyzed by the Holy Spirit. Amen. In verses 12 through 26, we saw Paul give us a little glimpse into what was going, what's going on with him. And we get this great verse that Pastor Mark preached on two weeks ago, verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So Paul has already established how he feels about death and also what he thinks life is all about. Now he turns to exhorting the Philippians. Verse 27 is going to provide a sort of summary statement that's going to carry us all the way into the middle of chapter 2. And there's a lot in this verse, so I'm going to break it down a bit. We're going to call the first chunk uh, 27a. And remember, no chapters or verses in the original manuscript, so we can do that. No manuscripts were harmed in the making of this sermon. So verse 27a, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
three questions we want to answer from 27a. Number one, what does only mean? Number two, what does it mean to live a life worthy? And number three, what is the gospel? The word translated only here in English in the ESV is a pretty important word. It's actually stronger than just only. More like this and this only, or at all cost. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying the thing of utmost importance is for you to live a life worthy of the gospel. He's already mentioned the gospel a few times leading up to this, and Paul is again linking himself to the Philippians through the gospel. So living a life worthy of the gospel is the singular focus to which Paul is driving the Philippians here. That's the only that we see at the beginning of the verse. With that as a clear focus, what does it actually mean to let your manner of life be worthy? So the word that's translated as let your manner of life be worthy in English in the ESV is in the Greek, the word polytuiste. Um, it's hard to say. Uh, the root of the word is polis for city or in this case more like nation state. And this has to do with citizenship. So the New Living Translation renders this, you must live as citizens. And I think that's a more precise way to render it, more precise than just let your manner of life be worthy and more getting after what Paul is getting after here. So if we're to live as citizens, the obvious question is citizens of what? So if you're a Philippian, Having this letter read to you and you hear this word, or even if you're an American, which most of us in here are, reading it now, you say, citizen, I'm a citizen. I know what it means to be a citizen. Is he telling us to be good Americans? And was he telling the Philippians to be good Romans? No, that's not what he's after. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony, a fact about which most Philippians would have been extremely proud. Many Philippians were Roman citizens and the ones who weren't wanted to be. Roman citizenship was a big deal. Paul's no dummy. He's playing to this sense of pride about the Philippians' Roman citizenship. It was a little, it's a little harder to come by Roman citizenship back in the day than it is to come by American citizenship now, but I think generally speaking, most Americans are quite proud of their American citizenship. So I think this text actually really, the thrust of what Paul is after really resonates well with us. But again, is he talking about Roman citizenship or is he talking about American citizenship? No, that's just his way in. That's his way of resonating with his audience. Paul's letter is to the church not just the Philippians in general. So later in Philippians, in chapter 3, in verse 20, Paul's going to remind them that their citizenship is in heaven. And I think he's getting at the same thing here in chapter 1, namely, citizenship in heaven, not citizenship in any earthly nation state. So our summary theme and takeaway statement for the entire sermon is, as citizens of heaven, at all cost. Live worthy of the gospel. As citizens of heaven, at all costs, live worthy of the gospel. If you can walk away with that, then I've been successful. So now let's talk about what exactly that means. What does it mean, first, to be a citizen of heaven? 
Well, in the same way that Paul uses the analogy of citizenship to appeal to the Philippians' Roman pride, I think we can use our American citizenship as a way of understanding our heavenly citizenship. So what does it mean to be a citizen in general? Some of you are going to say, we have to pay taxes. And that's true, but I don't think that's what we're primarily after. Citizenship means that you get all of the benefits and protections afforded by your nation state. Citizenship also means that a citizen's allegiance is first and foremost to their own country. So if I go to vacation to Mexico, for example, does that make me a Mexican? No, of course not. I'm an American who happens to be in Mexico. If I head to Paris for a few weeks or even months, I'm still an American, correct? We. Sojourning to a place, traveling to a place, does not make us citizens of that place. We are citizens of our own country. So what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? It means that our allegiance is to the king and kingdom of heaven above all else. There is no dual citizenship for the citizen of heaven. We have only one kingdom, and our allegiance is to that kingdom at the cost of all other allegiances. If our literal citizenship here on earth conflicts with our figurative citizenship in heaven, we choose heaven. Heaven wins. We see this so clearly in the book of Acts, and this is the only other text we're going to turn to today, so if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're going to camp out there for just a minute. Acts chapter 5. So the scene here, the apostles are arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin because they've been faithfully preaching the gospel. They've been arrested for preaching the gospel. And in verse 28, the high priest says to them, We strictly charged you not to teach in His name, the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter And the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. This is a simple principle for the Christian, the citizen of heaven. Obey God rather than obeying man. Peter understood this and he lived by it. They told Peter and the apostles, You can't preach Jesus. Peter said, I've been given a a higher command by God to preach the gospel, and I have to obey that command rather than your commands. Paul lived this way too. Why? Because they understood that as citizens of heaven, their allegiance wasn't to the Sanhedrin or the Jewish people or the laws of the land. It was to the king of the universe. They understood that they were sojourners or travelers here on earth, and it's a principle that we need to take to heart. So we have to understand, we're not going to be here long. What, maybe 80, 90 years if you have good health? What is that compared to eternity? We don't live here. This isn't our home. We're on a trip. Incidentally, do you guys know the difference between a trip and a vacation? A vacation is when you travel without children. A trip is when you travel with children. Why? Because it's a lot of work. We are on a trip. This is not our final destination, and we have to view our lives here on earth with less permanence. It's going to be over before we know it, and only what we've done for Christ will last. Think about it. 
When you go on a trip, you don't stay long at the rest stop. Now, I don't think I've ever actually been to a North Carolina rest stop, but I've spent a lot of time in uh, Texas and Louisiana rest stops. They're not pleasant places. They're nasty. They smell. The floors are wet. We all know what that is. It's disgusting, okay? What do you do when you go to the rest stop? You stop, you get out, you pee, you get back in the car, and you go. That's what the rest stop is for. It is not the ultimate destination. Being enamored with the things of the world without seeing them in light of our citizenship in heaven would be like vacationing or living at the rest stop. The rest stop serves a purpose, but it is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. In the same way, our life here on earth is not the end in itself. It's a means of getting us, not just to the kingdom, but to our king. It's a means of getting us to Jesus. That's where we retain our citizenship with him. And that gets us to the next part of uh, 27a. We're not just citizens, not just to live as citizens of heaven. We're to live as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is going to provide our focus. And this is what our citizenship is all about. What is the gospel? Now, I know we talk about the gospel a lot. We hear about it all the time. In fact, it's regularly proclaimed from this pulpit. Do we really need to define it? Well, I think so because... I don't ever want to make assumptions about anybody who's in the church. We never know what visitors we're going to have. So I don't want to make any assumptions that everyone has heard the gospel or understands the gospel. So if we're going to heed Paul's words, we first have to understand them. Fortunately, we don't have to go far. The gospels uh, permeate scripture. And it happens to be right back in Acts chapter 5 where we just were. So since we're already there, keep your place starting in verse 30. And remember, this is right after Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. He says to the high priest, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now remember, what exactly was the crime that Peter and the apostles were accused of? Preaching the gospel. So they get called into the Sanhedrin and they say, you can't preach the gospel. Peter says, yes we can. Must obey God rather than men. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. It's amazing. We have a full presentation of the gospel here. Number one, at the end of verse 31, we see that Christ brings repentance and forgiveness of sins. This assumes that we are sinners who need forgiveness, and who need to repent. Christ is the one who brings that. How? Number two, because he lived a perfect life, and at the end of verse 30, we see that he died a sacrificial death by hanging on a tree, namely a cross. The death of the Son of God was a saving act that bridged the gap that exists between a sinful man and holy God. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, sin is covered and those who believe in Him are saved. We see at the beginning of verse 31 that Jesus is exalted. Not only as Savior, but also as leader or king. But He's dead, right? Hung on a tree, killed on a cross by the Jews. 
That brings us to number three. He was exalted after he was resurrected from the dead, and his resurrection, in it, we find hope for our own resurrection unto eternal life. This is the gospel. That is good news. God is holy. We are not. Jesus died. We can be saved. So to tie the gospel back to our citizenship in heaven, citizenship in heaven is only for those who are saved, only for those who put their faith in Jesus. Is that citizenship earned? You better believe that citizenship is earned, but it's not earned by us. It's earned by the King Himself. So our enhanced summary statement, don't memorize this one, memorize the first one. This is, this is the expanded version. Would be, as citizens of heaven, at all costs, live worthy of the good news that even though you're sinners, Christ lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and was resurrected from the dead that you might be saved from your sin and join Him in eternal life. That's a mouthful. That's why we have the word gospel. So this statement lays the foundation. Paul, in this tiny, compact little verse, lays that entire foundation to the church at Philippi and to us as well. So he's going to tell us now three ways that we can accomplish this. Three ways that we can live lives worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven. We see number one in the middle of verse 27. We still haven't even gotten out of 27. It's okay. The rest will go fast. He says, stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul's actually using military language here. He's saying, stand your ground and don't yield an inch. Not only were a lot of the Philippians Roman citizens, many of them were active or even retired military. So this would have resonated, this language, this military language would have resonated with them as well. So when Paul says, with one mind, he means in unity. As believers, we got to stick together. We're going to face hostility, we're going to face opposition, and we have to stand firm. We mustn't back down, we mustn't flee, we mustn't compromise, and most importantly, we must not be divided. We must be unified. He doesn't just say that we're to stand firm with one mind, but he also says in one spirit. Now you could read this as getting after these two things as getting after the same thing. The same thing. The same thing as in one mind. Um, that they're sort of parallel. And that in one spirit is about unity or maybe an esprit de corps. A sense of belonging. But I don't think that that's what Paul is actually after here. I think spirit should actually be capitalized. Because I think he's talking about God the Holy Spirit. And we see similar statements in Philippians and other letters where it's crystal clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But I think what he's saying here is stand firm in unity by the Holy Spirit. This is intended to give the church confidence that they're not on their own. We're not to yield an inch. We're supposed to stay together. But the source of that strength and unity comes from where? It comes from God Himself by the Holy Spirit. Imagine a general telling his troops, the attack is coming, it's going to be vicious, but we can't lose any ground and we have to stick together. But don't forget, the cavalry is coming. It's similar to what Paul is getting after here. The second way that we live a life worthy of the gospel as citizens is we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. So not only are we to not give an inch, we're actually to advance 
There's still a hint of military language, but there's also some athletic, some sports language happening here. Striving together towards a common goal is what he's after. Now, I don't know about you all, but the Olympics have been on in our house pretty much nonstop since last week. I suggested on Friday evening that we watch the Packers preseason game instead of the Olympics, and I was met first by a blank stare, and then the response, preseason? Really? So, it's all right. I got to follow the game on Twitter. They won. I'm not bitter. Um, But we've been watching a lot of the Olympics, and what we see primarily in the Olympics, we see a lot of individuals who are striving. Whether it's Michael Phelps reaching out, striving for the wall on the 200-meter butterfly, beating his opponent by four one-hundredths of a second, or whether it's Katie Ledecky setting a world record in the 800-meter and besting the next best person by 12 seconds. Uh, Somebody pointed out that her margin of victory is actually greater than the amount of time it's going to take Usain Bolt to run the entire 100-meter race. I thought that was great. But we see lots of individual striving. There are lots of team events, but if you think about it, a lot of the team events are really just individual events strung together. So what do they do with the swimming? It's like, well, put all the times together, and whatever team comes out ahead, they win. What about gymnastics? They add all the points together, but it's individuals doing their own thing, not in cooperation, and, but then building off of what the other one does. I think if we'd have turned on the Packers preseason game, we would have seen a better example of striving together so Amber didn't know that she was hindering my sermon preparation by preventing me from watching the game. But think about that for a second. On a football field, the entire team works together for one goal. And what is that? Move the ball down the field. It's that simple. So everybody has the same goal, but they have different jobs. The guards have to block or the quarterback gets creamed. The receivers have to run precise routes Or nobody's going to be there to catch the ball when it arrives. And, of course, the quarterback has to read the defense and he has to put the ball right where it needs to go. And if any one of those things doesn't happen, if any one of those folks does not do their job, it spells disaster. This is striving together. Every person with a different job aimed at the same goal. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul spells this out even further, and you're going to see every citizen of heaven has a different function within the body of Christ, but every citizen works together in unity within that body for the faith of the gospel. Now, this is an important qualifier that Paul puts on there, for the faith of the gospel. And what does that mean? It means we're all unified under the purpose of spreading the gospel, absolutely. But it also means that we're unified under the particular tenets or principles of our faith. So we should be unified around gospel issues, not just spreading the gospel. And we shouldn't allow non-gospel issues to divide us. We are to be unified for the faith of the gospel, not for the example, uh, not for example, for the faith of our politics. So, as a Christian, is it okay to be political? Well, sure, of course it is. We should champion political causes, but we should shy away from championing political causes for their own sakes. We shouldn't be merely political. We should champion political causes that contend for the faith of the gospel and oppose causes that don't do that. 
So it also means when we stand up for right, good, and just political causes, we should stand up for them in a fully Christian way. What do I mean? Well, take being pro-life, for example. Should Christians be pro-life? Absolutely. I think it's clear as, be- uh, clear as can be, and I think you can make that case from Scripture. But guess what? A Christian view of pro-life isn't one, uh, one that contends for the faith of the gospel shouldn't just mean pro-unborn baby. Christians should be pro-old life, orphan life, black life, brown life, white life, blue life, poverty-stricken life. We should be pro-infirm life, mentally handicapped life, pro-refugee life, illegal immigrant life. We should even be pro-the lives of those who oppose us. That's what it means to be fully pro-life. And that's not an exhaustive list. The faith of the gospel demands that principles of that faith override other allegiances. Are you more Democrat than you are Christian? If you hear me say that and you think to yourself, can a Christian even be a Democrat? You might be more Republican than you are Christian. Remember, we're citizens of heaven. What do citizens of heaven do? We strive so that the gospel will be proclaimed, but we also strive to live out the faith of the gospel as our first and overriding commitment above all else. So Paul's application of our theme, our principle, as citizens of heaven, at all costs, live worthy of the gospel, his application is that we're to stand firm in unity by the Holy Spirit, not yielding any ground, and we're to strive We're to push forward for the faith of the gospel. There's one more in this passage, one more application, one more principle that he gives us, and it's this. Don't be afraid. He says in verse 28, Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, why should we be afraid? You may may think that's interesting that he says that. You're thinking, what do I have to be afraid of? Because there will be opposition. And back to our football analogy, how much easier would moving the, fall, moving the ball down the field be if there were no defense opposing that goal? be pretty simple, right? Paul knows that there's going to be opposition, so he encourages the Philippians and us not to be afraid, but he doesn't sugarcoat it. Look in verse 29. He says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It has been granted to you? So suffering is a gift? If I'm a Philippian, and I hear this, I'm like the kid at Christmas who gets socks. I'm looking around going, this is, no, this is a terrible gift. Where is the receipt so I can return this? I don't think we hear suffering and think to ourselves, oh, what a gift, right? We see here that belief has been granted as a gift. He says that as well. And earlier he says that the Holy Spirit is going to be with us. Now those sound like gifts. But suffering? Suffering does not sound like a gift that anybody would want. But Paul is linking belief and suffering together here. He doesn't paint suffering as something to be avoided. Is Paul saying that suffering is good? No, I don't think that he is. Only a masochist would make that claim. So how is it a gift? We're going to come back to that 
um, in a minute. I'm going to step aside and try to hammer this point home a little bit. Suffering has been a reality for Christians throughout history. So Paul and the other apostles suffered, and all of them, with the exception of John, they were killed for their faith. John died in a prison where he was in prison for his faith. So it wasn't exactly rosy for him. In the early church, Christians were regularly fed to lions. Um, That doesn't sound pleasant. certainly doesn't sound like a gift. And in the Reformation, faithful brothers were burned at the stake. And there are countless examples of all of those. But let's be real. This type of thing is not happening in the United States of America right now. You can't think of the last time that they took some poor Christian and threw him in the lion pen at the zoo. The kid who fell in with the gorillas doesn't count. Um, Professing Christianity here used to be the norm. And so while we're not being fed to the lions, it... Christianity is increasingly at odds with our culture. Standing up for Christ and standing up for biblical principles is becoming increasingly counter-cultural. A few states are even starting to flirt with laws that would make it illegal to teach certain biblical principles lest those teachings make folks uncomfortable. Now, that's scary. There's no question that religious liberty is being threatened. And if it comes under siege, we're going to face persecution and we're going to have possible suffering as a result. One of my biggest fears, I don't know why, this is probably fairly irrational, um, but one of my biggest fears is being falsely imprisoned. You hear these horrible stories of folks who are convicted of a crime and they're thrown in jail only for years or decades later uh, for the authorities to find out, hey, guess what? They didn't do it. We've been able to exonerate them with DNA evidence. Some of those folks die in prison. Some of them have even been executed only to be exonerated later. And that is a huge fear. The thought of that haunts me. But a new fear has started creeping up for me, and that is not, what if I'm falsely in prison? But what if I'm in prison because I broke an unjust law, namely a law that tells me that I can't preach the gospel? If it were illegal for me to preach the gospel or to uh, stand up for biblical principles, would would I stand here before you? I don't know. If telling my neighbor about Jesus meant that he might turn me into the authorities and I might go to jail? Can you imagine that? Well, this is the reality that many of our brothers and sisters live in. So, back to our country. We're going to spend a little more time talking about the other side of the world in a minute, but we are incredibly blessed in this country. And even though things are getting worse, things are still really good for us here. We can preach... Uh, the gospel without much fear of reprisal. So I've heard claims from some people, from some Christians in the United States of America, that they're persecuted. But I think a lot of times when people say that in the United States, what they mean is not persecution. What they mean is political opposition. And Paul said to the Philippians that they had been given a gift to suffer for what? For the sake of Christ. So you being required to have health care coverage, that's not persecution. And it certainly isn't suffering for the sake of Christ. Further, being persecuted 
Because you claim to stand for biblical principles while saying unloving, unchristian, bigoted things? That's not persecution. The people of the Westboro Baptist Church, these are these fools that picket military funerals. They hold up signs that say things like, God killed your sons, or thank God for dead soldiers, and countless other things that I'm not going to repeat from the pulpit. They are criticized. They are opposed. Rightfully so. That is not persecution. And that's an extreme example, but the point is that suffering is only a gift when it's suffering for the sake of Christ. If you feel that you're being persecuted, you should closely examine the situation and ask yourself, is this for the sake of Christ? So Paul's words here may be more applicable to us someday than they are now, but again, they apply all too well to brothers and sisters around the world right now. Paul said, don't be afraid. That's our third application. We have a hard time even understanding what we should fear. But our brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe, they exemplify this principle, this application of not being afraid. Christian persecution hasn't ever really stopped. um, But it seems to be increasing as of late. The rate of Christians who were killed for their faith from the year 2014 to 2015 doubled, more than doubled, actually. Now, to be clear, this isn't about... Christians who happen to die. It's not Christian brother so-and-so was killed in a car accident or Christian brother so-and-so was a soldier and he died in battle. No, this is about Christians who are killed because of their faith. They are persecuted and executed because they believe in Jesus and they're preaching Jesus. And these numbers are increasing, but this doesn't even count, doesn't even account for the estimated fifty to 70,000 Christians who are in labor camps in North Korea, for example. Or the countless others who were driven from their homes in Iraq because they are Christians. Iraq, where Christianity used to be 14% of the population and in a little over a decade has dropped to under 4%. Many experts fear that Christianity will soon have no presence in many parts of the Middle East. Christianity was born in the Middle East. Think about that for a second. Those are macro-level stats. Let's bring it home and bring it a little bit closer. A few examples on the ground. Brother Michael, an evangelist in Uganda, brutally beaten by Muslim men because he was teaching Jesus. Sister Wakitu from Ethiopia, converted to Christianity last year. She was beaten by her Muslim husband and other Muslim men in the community, and she died a few days later. Two of her sons have since followed Christ. Pray for them. Pastor Roberto in Colombia is regularly threatened by local guerrillas. They've come in and torn up his church building, and they've even threatened him in the middle of preaching sermons. It's not always physical violence, That's inflicted. Ali, a Christian in Myanmar, lost his job after coming to Christ. Hugh Shigen, an underground church leader in China, was sentenced to seven and a half years for the crime of subversion against the government. He had previously served a 16-year prison sentence. I'm going to tell you about one more, and I'm actually going to read this testimony. For whatever reason, it seemed to resonate with me more than the rest. This is a testimony of a woman in Iran whose name we don't know. She said, We started preparing for our daughter, Lily, 
for persecution when she was still in primary school, we told her, when they come and take mom and dad away, don't worry. The Bible tells us that it's normal to be persecuted as believers. Think about that. Normal to be persecuted as believers. She said, they'll take us to prison. They're going to ask us some questions. They'll hit us, and then we'll come back. Like, like it's, hey, this is me going to work, right? This is run, it's almost testified to as if it's run-of-the-mill. This is their reality. So then her and her husband were actually arrested. And she continues... It was an early winter morning when the authorities came to our house. Lily was 12 at the time and had already left for school. They rang the bell and they came to our apartment. They started searching everything. Then they ordered my husband and me to come with them. While we were being taken to prison, I knew what Lily would do when she was picked up from school by my sister. She would pray for us. And when she was afraid, she would pray more. In prison, my husband and I were split up. I was allowed to call Lily four times a week. I was interrogated daily, and soon they found my weak spot, my little girl. I told them everything they wanted to know about myself, but I refused to give the names of others. Okay, they told me, as long as you won't give names, you can't call your daughter. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this? Put yourself in this woman's Shoes. One of our most base instincts is to take care of our children. It's one thing to suffer persecution when it affects us. Could you, could I willingly endure persecution and endure suffering if it impacted our children in the same way that it did for this woman in Iran? This is reality for many brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe. There are countless stories just like that one. So to come back to my question, how is this a gift? I've just elaborated on why it's not a gift. It sounds terrible. How is it a gift? Two ways. It's a gift to the church because it purifies the church. In our country, particularly here in the South, lots of people profess faith in Jesus. You ask folks and you'll get some, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus stuff. I actually had somebody say that to me one time. Um, I've never, I don't know that I've ever heard a more dismissive statement. This doesn't happen where persecution and suffering exist. So when imprisonment, beatings, and death are a very real possibility, there aren't a lot of people professing Christ if they don't truly have faith. So suffering helps to purify the church. A second way that this is a gift, and this is right back in Philippians 1, in verse 28. Paul tells us that striving for our faith without fear is a clear sign to those who persecute us of their destruction. We're not going to deal with that today. But of your salvation. He's talking to the Philippian believers. And that from God. So Paul is saying to us that our faithfulness in persecution is a reminder and confirmation that we're really saved. He's also quick to remind us that salvation is from God. He doesn't want us to get a big head, being puffed up for our perseverance. How could we? Even that is from God. Paul closes out this passage in verse 30 by encouraging the Philippians that he's right there with him, encouraging them that he is suffering in the same way. 
And this isn't in my manuscript, but we read through the Beatitudes this morning and listened to what Jesus says. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are citizens of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'll close us with this. If you have faith in King Jesus then you are a citizen of His kingdom. Being citizens of heaven who are sojourning or traveling on earth is not always easy. But we find encouragement in the Word of God. Paul reminds us that we're citizens of heaven, but we're not there yet. We're traveling. We're on a trip. Keep your eyes on the kingdom of heaven, and more importantly, keep your eyes on our King, Jesus Don't set up camp at the rest stop. Remember where you retain your citizenship. Stand your ground. Let's strive together for the faith of the gospel and don't be afraid. The God who saved us will carry us home.